you hear this all the time, Tim. It's like, man, I slowed my training down, slowed down, and I, and I hopped into a race, and I ran like my best 5K. Certainly, you hear it all the time in marathons where they take that stress of needing to like nail workouts and things, leave their, their race out on the track. Welcome to Power Up Your Performance, where we talk about how you can learn to think, feel, perform, and live like a champion. Hey everyone, welcome to the show. Today I am so excited to talk with Dr. Mark Kukazella. Dr. Mark is the author of Run for Your Life, How to Run, Walk, and Move Without Pain or Injury and Achieve a Sense of Well-Being and Joy. But he is so much more than an author. He is also an Air Force Reserve Lieutenant Colonel who practices family medicine in West Virginia, and he is a professor at the West Virginia University School of Medicine, and he also conducts healthy running medical education courses. I am so honored to talk to him, and as you can tell when we get into this interview, we started talking I forgot to hit record, and so you're jumping right into the middle of our conversation. And I felt like we could have just kept talking forever. It was just a really fun conversation, and I hope that you enjoy just kind of being right there in the background and hearing this conversation that we were just having about running. And we talk not just about running. We talk about nutrition. Seems like so much of what we here as runners or the advice we get as athletes is it depends. And so he goes into some of this it depends philosophy and explains why there are no hard and fast rules for everyone. And I hope that you'll get a lot out of this interview. Before we get started though, I have some news to share. You might have noticed that I have not updated the podcast as regularly this fall or that maybe the power of run Instagram and Facebook pages haven't gotten a ton of new content. And that is because I have had my head buried in research and I am writing a book. I have turned in my final pages and talking to Dr. Mark Kukazala was one of the steps in my research process. So when you listen to this, you will get a little sneak peek into some of the behind the scenes processes in research that I went through for the book. It is a book on endurance and it will be out in the spring. And I am so excited to share more details with you once I am able. So now on with my interview with Dr. Mark Kukazella. But I'm wondering, where do you fall when it comes to can you train for a marathon only doing moderate to low intensity training? Yes, that's a great question, Kim. We're on now, correct? Yeah. Yeah. So I think human variability and what, how much time you have and what your goals are is, is super important. So can you train for a marathon with moderate intensity? I mean, I think that's how the human species evolved. You know, so how, how do we just move from place to place? Most of it wasn't high intensity unless you were chased and you needed a short period of time. But marathon running, by definition, is low intensity you know, for people that just are citizen runners, you know, which is people, I own a little shoe store. I'm, I'm in here now. It's in a small community of West Virginia. I don't see many people come in here that are under three hours for a marathon. You know, so if you want to qualify for Boston, 
you know, then you need specificity. You need to do some training at the pace that you would need to run for that specific time, which probably is not healthy to go out and do that every day. But if you just want to go finish the race and get healthy and have fun, you know, it should be at a conversational type of pace, a fat burning pace, Uh which is like a mafetone pace. Um, So that's train at that pace. Most of all, my training is, I'd say 98% of it is at that kind of pace. And I can still run marathons, you know, at Boston qualifier times with quite a bit of margin. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. But it takes years of developing that, you know, you can't, so someone wants couch to marathon 12 weeks, you know, they're going to go run easy. It depends on what their base is. You know, it's all people learn the stuff from Lydia, you know, the bigger the base, you know, the higher the peak. So people that tend to do well off of easy, moderate training aren't people that just jumped into the sport at age 50 with type two diabetes metabolic syndrome you know they've gone down that path it's going to take years of you know reversal of a lot of adverse health effects but if you've stayed healthy your whole life and you've just lived like a normal human and been active and and it's less risk of getting hurt so when you run too hard your recovery and risk of getting hurt are you know compromised right so let's backtrack a little bit then and let's talk a little bit about what your philosophy is on what does a runner do need to do to have longevity? Not like I'm going to jump into this and I'm going to go do a marathon in 12 weeks, but I'm in this now and I want to run for the rest of my life. What are the keys to longevity? The key, I would say stay healthy first. And that has nothing to do with running. So if you want to keep, you know, I'm 53. So to keep running when I'm 80, I have to stay healthy, which means sleep, eat, (laughs) stress, you know, all that stuff. Because if I get, you know, bad chronic disease, heart disease, you know, then you're kind of shut down from that. So overall health, I think is, is even in the, you know, the modern Lydia pyramid, Kim, you know, what Lorraine shows, you've Mm -hmm. got the base training pyramid, but she's got this other layer under that pyramid health. And I think we all have our own issues to stay healthy or the, you know, the bullets coming at us every day you know, with jobs and night shift work and things like that, that, that can break you, you know, horrible food. You know, I think foundationally to stay healthy, don't eat junk food because most of what I see in my state are people who have metabolic disease, mostly driven by what they eat and you can't run that off. So that being said, you know, figure out for your genes, your lifestyle, how not to become a medical patient. So if you're 53, most, this is sad, you know, some 53 and most of my peers my age, you know, whether they're in medicine or not, are on four to five prescription medication. Right. And you're like, whoa, that's, you know, that's not good. You know, there's some things you can, you know, bad luck and, you, you know, you're on a med for something, but most of them are chronic high blood pressure, cholesterol, heart mm-hmm. disease, you know, joint pains and taking anti-inflammatories. There, there are things that can be, you know, attributed to lifestyle. So, yeah. You know, healthy people don't need medications for the most part. So if you're 70 and not on any medications and otherwise healthy, your odds of being able to run are better than because the side effects of all these medications really inhibit your running. You know, statin medications, for example, the cholesterol lowering medications yeah. affect big time your mitochondrial function. You know, and that's how we make ATP, you know, how we make energy, how we contract our muscles. So not all, but a you know a good percentage get cramping with these medications. You know they kind of think ah oh, it's just cramping, but it's actually the medication side effect 
And if you get them healthy enough to remove the medication, then they can run, you know, beta blockers, for example, that are given for heart, any, you know, blood pressure, heart conditions. They put a governor on your heart rate. And if you want to go run and your heart rate can't elevate to the capacity that you want to run, you're, you're not going to enjoy your running. If you know, so, mm-hmm. you know, how do I, I think this is probably the simplest. Uh, response to how do you make running sustainable to your lifetime is is it fun and is it play because if you ain't enjoying it doesn't matter what your training plan you know whether you love high intensity whether you love easy runs you know if it's not fun you're not going to do it so i completely agree so maybe that's a little simplistic but if you wake up every day and you want to go for a run you're doing the right thing for you that means you've probably rested um, you like being outside, you know, the movement does good things for your brain. I've got a dog too. I don't have one with me in here, but it's all good. Yeah. I run every morning with my dog and like, it's really nice and peaceful. It's the only time people can't find you. So I'm up at four. I like running at like four thirty in the morning, you know, with my dog in the pitch black. And I live in a really country area. There's, I, I, I think maybe once a week I might see a car. So I'm not worried about getting slammed or something, but it's it's great. That makes my day and the rest of the day is a bonus after that because I started with a run. And it gets slower every year because my dog's getting older. So <laughs> has and nothing to do with things, you, right? Because you, know, I, you know, I like learning a little more about the science because you want to keep your tendons mm-hmm. um, really healthy and strong. So, you know, she's uh, 11 years old now and just trots like super slow trotting, which is actually really good way to recover on is just it's easy trotting but i'll throw on a weight vest you know 25 30 pound weight vest just for the little half hour when i have her and i'll go just trot with this little it's like super slow with a weight vest it you know and i could probably dig up the studies about what this does to the strength of your tendons and then you take that weight vest off because a half hour is good with my dog and then i'll usually go out for another half hour mm-hmm. crazy like holy cow you feel yeah you feel like a million bucks it makes you appreciate too, you know, medically, Kim, I I do a lot of work with obesity and diabetes. You know, my day job doesn't really have much to do with running, but so many patients I see here in West Virginia are a hundred pounds overweight. And then, you know, as a medical system, we say, well, go exercise and go run or something, but that hurts. So they need to lose that weight. It gives you a little bit of empathy. Sorry, we'll get, we'll flip the phone off there, but it gives you some empathy to what you know, if we tell people just right off to run, you know, and they haven't gotten some of that weight off, I'll get people walking first because mm-hmm. if it hurts, they won't do it. And, and most people you, probably aren't running with good form. You know, I'm, when I have a weight vest on, I'm, you know, running nice and rhythmically, bouncy, good posture, breathing. So you, mechanically supporting the weight correctly. If it's sitting on your belly, it's different than if it's like a weight vest pack that's sitting functionally on your body. But I know that's a little sidetracked, but yeah, so just, it's fun. My dog likes, and it, it gets you, even at a slow pace, it's giving you some strength training. When we get older, we need more strength. Uh-huh. So anything that adds a little more load like that probably helps the muscle from atrophy. So what do you do when you have that person that comes into you that is a hundred pounds overweight and you need to try to get them motivated to do any kind of movement? What What do you find works with them to actually get them off the couch and moving. Yeah, I, I don't think you can motivate people, you know, so 
I think people have to kind of have energy. So if you think of maybe like the worst week in your life, maybe something and you just you just didn't want to run, right? Like you just mm-hmm. whatever the hell's going on. Maybe you're sick, family members, some stress in your life. And uh yeah, what if I came in and wanted to motivate you to run? Right. You don't feel like running, right? So you mm-hmm. most of the folks I see, you know, have you know, obesity and diabetes is hormonal dysregulation. It's not energy in, energy out, so you have to burn more energy. So if their insulin levels are high, meaning they're eating a lot of processed carbohydrates, which release energy, and that, that, which release insulin, and that insulin stores the carbohydrate as body fat. So basically what's happening is you're taking the energy out of their engine and storing it away, and they can't get at it. So these people don't feel like exercising, and they're hungry because the hormones are driving them Mm -hmm. obese direction so what i do in the clinic is i want to fix the food first and get their insulin levels down you know so if they go on a more low-carb diet i'm on a low-carb diet i was diagnosed with pre-diabetes and a low level of insulin eight years ago so i did this for my own health and and, uh, after about a week they actually start making energy because insulin levels go down and you can't access fat as fuel until insulin levels are at a critical low. So for each person, it's got to be below a threshold. So you get them, you know, and, and it takes a little patience. You know, it doesn't, that switch doesn't happen in a day. It's usually three to five days. Then they start, and then they wake up and want to clean the house because they're making energy. And they want to exercise because basically that fat that's around their belly is being mobilized. You know, it's like the accessory tank. This is like the, the backpack that you couldn't get at, you know, the fuel uh-huh. backpack that was locked away when you're eating carbs all day. But when that backpack now starts making its way into your combustion chamber, then, wow, I want to walk. Because you can't force it. If You know, willpower is a limited resource. So if we right. think people just, the world has a willpower deficiency, that's why everyone's overweight now. I mean, it's kind of silly. You know, when two-thirds of the kids in, in school are overweight or obese, it's not like all of a sudden there's a lack of willpower. It's like we have to systemically figure it out. If it's one kid, you can say, well, maybe that's that one kid we need to motivate. But if right. the whole damn class, then something more systemic. So I get them to move, just try to move, right, not mm-hmm. exercise. It's, that sounds like punishment for most people I see who are medical patients. And then they start making energy, and then they want to move more. And uh, we just hosted a race here, a direct races with my friend Katie, who's in the in the store here with me. And it's so awesome to see people that you've seen in a medical setting out doing their first 5K. And I didn't even suggest they do it. They're like, they start walking, they join a cast of 5K, we host stuff at my store, and then they go finish. And these are people that you know, have been medical patients and wouldn't even dream that they would do that kind of thing. That's amazing. That so when you talk... When you talk about low carb, what is the balance of carbs, fat, and protein? Are you talking like all the way to keto? Are you talking just get rid of junk food carbs? What is your definition? It's a great question because the answer is always like everything. It depends on what your goal is and how sick you are. Exactly. And and what you can sustain, you know, so some people like, you know, I work in a hospital too, Kim, and if you come in, so the things that drive people's behavior change are things that create pleasure. It's enjoyable. I keep doing it. Mm-hmm. Or somehow you've felt the pain and that makes you change your behavior. For example, you know, your doctor says you got a lump in your lung and you've been smoking for 30 years. 
that scares the hell out of you. And you're like, I'm done. That's my last cigarette. And you pray that the biopsy is negative, right? But it scares you. You know, maybe it's just some other calcification and it's not something dangerous. People come in all the time with a heart attack or a complication of diabetes, don't know anything about anything, heart failure. They're busy people. But then now they're in the hospital bed and you have time to talk to them and they're reflecting on what it is that they need to do. And sometimes those folks are all in, right? They'll just go from standard American diet and they've got diabetes, basically any type of diabetes or pre-diabetes, you know, in essence means your body's, it can't tolerate carbohydrates. It's a problem of carbohydrates. That's why your sugar's high. You can't eat them. You can't process them. You're allergic to them. If Uh that's you, you high school cross country kid, that's not them. They're healthy. They can have carbohydrates. Just try to keep them away from junk food because, you know, you're just setting up good life patterns. So Mm -hmm. there's the well people and there's the ill people. So the ill people are different. You know, they need a different set of prescription and guidance. And some people can are like, you know, tiptoe gently into the cold water. And some people like just dive right in and whatever that person's, you know, modus operandi is, is how you would, you know, if there's someone who likes to kind of go gently, well, let me get rid of soda this week. Mm -hmm. Cool. I've done that. Okay, let me get rid of the chips, you know, and uh, yeah, you find out where their worst offender is and you get them to like quitting cigarettes, you know, no one quits addictive substances the first time. These foods are highly addictive. Right. The food industry knows this. And I think the world now knows this. It's a little area of your brain called the nucleus accumbens lights up like a Christmas tree when you eat these highly palatable foods. Yeah, so I see it work both ways. They need support from family, friends the medical establishment, but there's not like one prescriptive way of eating for the world. I mean, these people eat different all over the world, but if they're diabetes and obese, you know, I try to get them to wean themselves to the lowest tolerable level of carbohydrates and, but it's all real food. They're not going to be hungry. They're eating tons of eggs and cheese and non-starchy vegetables and seafood and nuts and olive oil and real butter. It's, It's delicious. And those are the foods that lower insulin. So then as a doctor, where do you draw the line between telling somebody, getting somebody to adopt more healthy eating habits and Mm -hmm. that line where it crosses to become disordered eating, where they are afraid to eat because all of a sudden a food is labeled bad? Yeah, I never label food good. Food isn't good or bad what your body does. So, so, I mean, there's so much, it's crazy. And I, you know, I just give people the permission to have joy. (laughs) So I love that. Yeah. It's, and you just pretty much when they come in the room, you unwind everything they thought was true, you know, about this stuff, you know, about willpower and restriction and food is good or bad. No food is good or bad. What, and you, you're not what you eat. You probably heard that you are what you eat. That's silly too. You are what your body does with what you eat. So, for example, like I've got a continuous glucose monitor on that I can check with my phone. It's on my arm. I can scan it. tells what my blood sugar is. If I have a banana, my sugar is 200. I mean, I'm not a banana. You know, <laughs> normal blood sugar is 100. You know, so that for many on this podcast, I don't know what that has to do with medicine. But a blood sugar of 200 is, you know, high. Yeah, it's diabetic range. So for me, a banana is not healthy food for my body. Now my son is 16 and plays on the soccer team. He doesn't have diabetes. He can eat a banana and he's just fine. 
I'd rather him have that than the chip. So he's fine. He's he's good. His pancreas is functioning normal. You know, so I get people to use these simple tools. You know, I could kind of even show you how this works. You know, this organ, I've got glucometer in my bag. They need to, if they're sick, they need to check their sugars. You know, and the technology of this stuff is cheap and easy. So this is a little device. It costs like 60 bucks. And yeah, so right now, so my, you can see that. So you uh -huh. see that. So that's my curve for the day. Uh huh. That's my curve for the day. Yep. I'm staying in that good range. Have three eggs for breakfast, a big salad with guacamole on top for lunch. And it's beautiful. It's good. Now, if I had, I could flip back a few days, you know, and I've had even a piece of fruit and it goes out of that curve. It doesn't mean that, like, I'm never going to have fruit again, but it's information. Most people don't know. Like, they, they don't know, right? They'll, someone will tell them, like, lentils or whole grain bread is healthy but they've got full-blown diabetes, so they'll eat a ton of that and their sugar would go to 300, what's well, whole grain or something. It, you know, it's silly. It's like, no, the, for that person, you can't, it's not one size fits all. Each person, it's like training, you know, it's like there's not like, a, there's guidelines which fit the bell curve of the population, which for the most might work in most scenarios, but then, most people that you probably would see as a coach or someone having difficulty is somewhere on the edge of that bell curve. So you can't just give them that stock, you know, because the, why they're seeing you is probably because whatever they're doing now isn't working. So you can't just say, well, just try harder with the standard stuff that you give to a well person. And it's, yeah, they need a good coach and, and coach like sports coaches need to collaborate you know, with the people that understand the medical side, because these days people coming to coaches, usually if they're, you know, middle ages, usually a health crisis led them. The doc said, I need to go run a 5K or something. And if your advice to that runner who's diagnosed with type 2 diabetes is, you know, eat carbo load, you've just wrecked them. Right. So how does a normal person, let's just say they're 40s, 50s, not a hardcore athlete, but just like a normal person who's going to start running a half marathon or whatever. How do they determine if what they're doing is spiking their blood sugar? You mean as far as their eating pattern? Yeah, yeah. As far as what they're eating, if if they yeah. need to make some changes. Well, for one, you, the people that are putting weight on in the middle, you know, in, in the waist, that's disease. So if people, however, if the way they're eating now is leading to them putting weight on in the middle despite their running it's not about the running there's something else going on and it's likely the diet but they could have sleep apnea you know they could be sleep deprived they could have hypothyroid they could be vitamin d deficient magnesium deficient you know there's other things you know it's not just i think the world of low carb is all over social media so that every single problem is not going to be solved by a low carb diet you right. know so that's where they do if someone is having some difficulty, they need to go to someone who understands like everything, you know, not just the diet because they need a diagnosis of what's going on. Um, if they have diabetes and they want to know how exercise and sugar or pre-diabetes or even obesity, you know, so people can go for $9 at Walmart and buy a glucometer, you know, people's blood sugar will be dysregulated before they develop diabetes, you know, so that's, like late stage by the time you get this diagnosis sugar's like really high at that point but right. the process has been going on for years so they could see gosh i have a bowl of cereal which is whole grain and my blood sugar went to 180 or 190 you know if that's happening continually that affects your cells 
also affects your brain. You know, most people know they get kind of irritable and then they crash and they feel hangry again at 10 in the morning and grab another bagel. And it's just not a, a fun way to be, but they don't know there's an alternative, which is to not be hungry and have sustainable energy. You know, like the word snack is really a misnomer because you, did your grandparents ever have snacks or did they just have breakfast, lunch, and dinner? I think just three meals. Yeah. Yeah. They wouldn't even know what a snack is other than. Yeah. yeah. So now like there's this whole culture that people need to snack and I don't know. I mean, if you have three egg omelet in the morning, I mean, I would hope you'd be good to lunch, you know, and even then like you maybe lunch just socially, but you'd probably be fine till dinner and have a big dinner. You know, if I don't have lunch because I'm busy, I, I'm, sometimes I'll just have a little piece of cheese or salami. It's not like I need to plan or have this big lunch because I have big breakfast. You know, my body makes energy from burning fat. I'm not trying to gain or lose weight, but then I'll have a real meal at dinner. It's not like you need to keep eating to give yourself energy. But yeah, so pay, patients can get, if they want to know, not pay, listen, runners are people, citizens. You know, they just go buy a glucometer, $9, check your sugar, simple. You know, I can show you on the <laughs> on the podcast here if you want. So, you know, there's my glucometers in there because I cross-check it against the continuous monitor just to make sure they're in line. It takes five seconds. And uh, they would see, and they would check pre and post a meal. So if people want to know, has that bowl of oatmeal with bananas on top? What's it doing to your sugar? blood sugar? Yeah, before, you know, one hour and two hours. See how quickly you dispose of it. The longer that glucose is up, that means your insulin is going up to try to deal with that. And if your muscles and liver are full, that's the diabetic state. So it's kind of like no more stuffing shirts in the suitcase, so to speak. That's your muscles and liver, but it's already overstuffed. So you can't get any more carbs in there. You're resistant. So then you go ahead and eat more carbs, but your muscles and liver say, I'm done. I'm full. Insulin goes up and where's it put the carbs? In your belly, right? Right there. So. Yeah, and that process is the road to diabetes. So besides all of this being bad for our health, can you explain a little bit about how sugar leads to inflammation and what that has to do with recovery as an athlete? Yeah, so it depends on what we mean by sugar and how much. I mean, the the dose makes the poison. Okay. And your body's overall state of health or ill health. So if you say you're a world-class ultra marathoner, not sick, muscles and liver work fine, you go out and run four hours, empty the tank, by all means, come home and have some carbohydrates. You know, if you eat carbs, you burn carbs. If you eat fat, you burn fat. Those folks are healthy. You know, they can eat carbs and burn carbs. Most of the Kenyan elite marathoners eat 600 to 900 grams a day of carbohydrate. They're not diabetic. (laughs) They're not insulin resistant. They can eat that. But they're not eating white bread. They're making ugali. And, you know, the, the smartest athletes are eating real food carbohydrates, you know, so beans, lentils, you know, maybe they, if you don't have an issue with flours, you could have some, you know, some real kind of green breads. It's all fine if, if you're healthy and your sugar's fine and the weight's not going on in the middle. But get fat and protein too. I mean, like, so there's essential fatty acids and essential amino acids that we need to restore and maintain muscle and brain and endocrine functioning and there's not a there's not a single essential carbohydrate so if you're just like 95 percent carbs and no fat and protein you're ultimately going to fail or crash the body's Mm -hmm. got reserves you know for maybe a year and there's certain 
food, there's certain uh, B12, for example, you know, it's only in animal products other than if you want to get some spirulina or something from the bottom of the sea. But so there's people kind of like can get away with things for a short period of time. And you've maybe experienced it with runners. Then they just somehow hit a wall and crash. But sustainable is you need to have essential amino acids and essential fatty acids. And these come packaged in things called real food. You know, you don't take amino acids. Your grandparents didn't do this. Mm hmm. So that's, the, yeah, so that's the foundation. So that's kind of food and fuel. So, I mean, a, a healthy insulin sensitive athlete who can tolerate carbohydrates, you know, so they need their fat and protein. That's nutrient dense for every function, endocrine function of their body, maintain muscle mass. And then the carbs are the fuel. Okay, so for someone with diabetes, they need to use fat as fuel because they can't, they're carbohydrate intolerant. Their bodies don't process them well. So this, the same foundation is the same fat and protein, which would be like an egg, meat, seafood, mm -hmm. olive oil, butter, you know, on, on your veggies, tons of veggies, but they're not going to have this other kind of plate over here of whole grain pasta because they're, they're just going to shoot the blood sugar up with that. I don't know. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's actually really helpful. I've never heard it explained that way, but that makes so much sense to me. And then you see each person has individual response. You know, how do you feel? You know, how's your energy? How's your mental clarity? You know, just for, you know, for your listeners, if you were to take, like, just think, let's think of an ideal food that would cover all those bases, you know, something you could eat without a fancy prep and mixing. No one's got time for this stuff. So what would be one food you could eat that would have the complete package of essential amino acids and essential fatty acids? What, take a guess at what that would be, and probably maybe you had it for breakfast today. Uh, and if you left it is alone, it an egg? yeah, if you left an egg alone, yeah, in nature, it would become a chicken. I know that might sound kind of silly, but but it's got like an egg without throwing the yolk away. That's crazy because that's where most of the right critical nutrients are, especially a good farm egg, right? Because that's going to have a better omega three balance. Mm -hmm. And it, I'm not telling people that's all you eat is eggs, <laughs> but, but if like, if you have like two, three eggs a day and then the rest is all basically supplement after that, you know, that's, you're getting choline, you know, all this critical stuff that you get. And that's the full package. You don't have to like read books about mixing different vegetable proteins to get the right mix of amino acids. I mean, no one's got time for that stuff unless you really do have time for that stuff, which is someone who's a very smart vegetarian can do that well. And, you know, I respect them and they're out there. And if it's working, do what they do. But most people I see, they don't, they're just kind of eating at sheets, which are, you know, gas stations. You know, they're not shop. There's no Whole Foods or there's no grocery yeah, stores. I, I feel like this is why so many, so many people. Yeah, you're in Kansas City, right? The Midwest, you know, it's totally different than you talked about Boulder, Colorado, where there's like a right. organic market around every corner. Yeah, but I do feel like this is part of the reason that people don't focus on nutrition is because we overcomplicate it and, you know, it's easier to go grab something from, you know, a fast food restaurant. Yeah. Well, you get confused. Well, this doc says an egg's going to kill me. This one, the latest newspaper headline said this and that. So they just say, oh, it's all bullshit. And then they eat the addictive foods. Yeah. So the, what do you think then? Because we're talking about three meals a day. Where does, do you believe that you need to eat before you run and then refuel with some sort of protein carb mix after? 
No, <laughs> I don't. I don't have any belief systems. Okay. Let's put that on the table. This is nothing is in sports is completely true and I love a that. belief system. So it depends on your goal. Are you having fun? Are you hungry? Mm-hmm. So if you want to become, you want to upregulate fat oxidation, you know, which is running marathons and ultras. You know, I never eat before I run. I mean, never. I mean, this goes back to the Lydia. I don't know if you remember the one slide uh, that Peter Snell had with, you know, the two hour run. If you don't have carbs or you don't eat before, so you're, de- you're it's just easy two hour run. So we've got type one and type two fibers. You got the slow mm-hmm. twitch recruited first, and then you got the type two, which are fast twitch fibers, which can go both ways. You have fast twitch oxidative fibers, and then you've got your type two explosive fibers. So genetically, all of us have a set mix of these things. You know, Usain Bolt has a better mix of the type two explosive fibers. And Eliud Kipchoge has a better mix of the type two oxidative fibers. You know, Mm -hmm. one's designed to run a marathon in 159 and the other runs 100 meters in nine seconds, point five or six, (laughs) whatever the hell that is. But those, those ones in the middle, those fast twitch fibers that can either become anaerobic or aerobic they're those in between fibers so if they're given an aerobic stimulus they actually turn aerobic meaning they develop capillaries and mitochondria so if you go on a two-hour run and uh, the muscle biopsy studies show this so in one hour you don't eat before right so you start the run your tanks maybe half full they do a muscle biopsy. Your slow twitch fibers are pretty much full. Your fast twitch fibers are pretty much full. So you're full. Hour into the run, do the muscle biopsy. And if anyone's seen that or never had it, it's like a little uh, apple core thing that goes. I've had one done just for volunteer for crazy experiments. But <laughs> they with with lidocaine, you don't go do this. Because yes. it's, it's a little piece of muscle tissue. It's not a big deal. So then they look at that at an hour. The slow twitch fibers are pretty much empty of glycogen and the fast twitch are full. Now, if you just stopped at an hour or you had drank Gatorade then, so if you drank Gatorade, you'd fill up the tank again, fill up the slow twitch again and run home. Mm-hmm. If you stopped at an hour, you'd be done. But the fast twitch fibers, you haven't even recruited them yet, but you got to get home. So what happens on the way home if you don't have gels or goos or whatever the heck it is and you just run home? You actually, when they do the biopsy after two hours, the fast twitch fibers are empty, depleted. So what does that mean if they're depleted of the glycogen? What happened to them? You used them, right? Right, right. Right? You recruited them. Mm -hmm. So if you've recruited that fast twitch muscle to work aerobically, it's going to adapt. It's going to figure out, you know, through years of training, mm-hmm. you know, it's going to develop capillaries, develop mitochondrial network, develop oxidative enzymes. This is why Lydia Drenners, I mean, no one does this now. So they would spend six months, six months building an aerobic base. Mm-hmm. Six months. But nobody wants to do that anymore because yeah, and that, was that like takes years, too long. Right? So like, this isn't like the first year. So, you know, so they're doing six months of aerobic base work, you know, and then, you look at like Peter Snell's trajectory. He was a mediocre high school runner. You know, then another year, another year, another year. And uh, I think he won his first gold. He was like 21, maybe. You'd have to go read Lydia's yeah. books. But then like then he, you know, he stuck around, right? His second, he won gold in the 
800 in 1960, and then he won double gold in 1964, and the 15 in the eight. So he added the more endurance event, and he won that. It really looked like a training run if you look at the final stretch. Wow. Yeah, he like no one else was even in the picture, and it was only a four lap race. But so that that principle there. So if you're hungry, so I mean, this just what I do is I never eat before I run. I like coffee, so I have coffee. In the summer, I certainly have electrolyte. You know, you need salt. Mm-hmm. So the no calorie versions. I use like you can hydrate. You know, because you're going through a lot of free water, and that's just good. You need the salt, magnesium, a little potassium. You can make homemade version of that, but don't don't need calories. And then you come home, and you make breakfast. And that breakfast for me is low carb because I like I have a medical condition. I don't eat the carbs. So for me, it's like a three egg omelet, delicious. <laughs> like mm-hmm. everything. I open the fridge, and I'm usually thinking about what I'm going to throw in my omelet the last mile because you're kind of getting a little bit hungry. Yeah. And you're like, oh, yeah, I had some sausage. You think of what you had last night for dinner. It's, oh, that's the best throwing in the left. Yeah, yeah. It's like, oh, yeah, I got some. I always cook eggs. extra stuff, you know, like every time I cook. Mm-hmm. You know, like especially, you know, you're going to cook six steaks instead of two, just so you've got like omelet stuff the rest of the week. You know, oh, I got some seafood, always ton of vegetables, just every ton of cheese, you know. Uh, I mean, you name it, <laughs> and it tastes so good, right? You just your body just like sucks that up, and you feel so good. But that works for me. I've been doing that plan for about eight years since I started to do low carbohydrate. That's awesome. And then you never bonk. I mean, the beauty of that is if you don't, you know, I'm not worried about bonking in a race because you so, won't because you you make energy from fat. You never bonk. So how close are you still to your three hour marathon? Yeah, last year I did 302. Okay. Yeah. So low carb is not hurting you at all. 12-ish at Boston. Okay. So, yeah, yeah, so I would say low carb isn't affecting no, you. No, no, I mean, I was running, I'm just 52 now, 50, well, that was last year, 52, Amazing. 53 now on 40 miles a week. But I was running, you know, 240, 238 low carb, you know, in my mid-40s. Wow. Not even fully adapted to it. You know, it takes uh, several years, I think. Yeah. You know, in the lab, you know, I could share a couple blogs. You know, it's all go lab test with the metabolic cart. So that measures how how efficiently and how fast you're running while burning fat, because then you never run out of gas. So I can burn close to two grams a minute of fat while running. And most people's cutoff is about 0.8. And then they've got to shift to carb. That's why people say, well, you got to have carbs because, you know, when you're running hard, you use carbs. But that if your bo- that's if your body's not adapted. So, so most people some- shift. Yeah, go ahead, Kim. So if somebody has trained themselves to run low carb, when they get yeah. into a race situation, what do they do? They do a drink with the electrolytes and what else do they need? Yeah, you just sense it on your body. So you're not relying on the carbs. So while you're like Boston Marathon and I'll, you know, I'll take a few hits of Gatorade and even maybe throw a gel down. Okay. You know, Cause your, your body's utilizing That's what I was wondering. glucose, but you're not eating it right at the start. And it's almost like, yeah, just throw a little, cause you, you know, yeah, it keeps your blood sugar stable when you're, cause you're racing a little higher end there, but you're mm-hmm. not doing some math while I'm running 26 miles and burning 6,000 calories and gel is 150 calories. Yeah. I mean, that's disaster. Because then your gut goes trying to throw these calories. So you're never worried 
the worst thing I see, you know, mostly ultra runners, you know, who can't really tap into fat, you know, they do all this math of how many calories they need. And then like they're thrown all and you're, if say you're running a little too hard, you're shunting the blood to your muscles, right? And your gut shuts down, but they're doing the math that they need all these calories, but they're shunting blood to the muscles because it's a little warmer. They're climbing, they're at altitude or something. And then it's just, they train for six months, you know, <laughs> and it's a, they sabotage. Yeah. If, if you're not worried about how many calories you need, you'll never, your gut will never go. Cause you've taken that big thing. Iron Man people, this happens all the time, right? You always hear it. My gut went, you know, my gut mm -hmm. went, stomach went. it's self-inflicted. So they need, if that keeps happening to you again and again, <laughs> then you need to figure out is it yeah figure out another way and but get tested talk to someone who knows what they're doing and it takes time like you don't do this one month before your peak race why well, i've read this blog you know about how to burn fat like and my body's going to make this switch it takes you're upregulating one system that takes time how it's long like do you training. think it takes I think it depends. I mean, I think most people in two or three. Yeah, of course. It depends Everything on how depends. you are so and how genetically your body. I mean, certain ethnicities, you know, genetically, you're going to be more predisposed to be more efficient at fat oxidation and how low are you in carbohydrates? Are you slowing your training down? Yeah, so it, it really does. But I, I think, you know, say, what's it's now end of October and say you've got an early spring marathon, I think it's a perfect time to lower the carbs, slow down your training, try to upregulate fat metabolism. And uh, you, you hear this all the time, Kim. It's like, man, I slowed my training down, slowed down, and I, and I hopped into a race, and I ran like my best 5K. Mm -hmm. I ran my best 10K. Certainly, you hear it all the time in marathons where they take that stress of needing to like nail workouts and things because then they yeah. just leave their, their race out on the track. Right, right. So I wanted to ask you a, two or three months, I think is a fair okay. time, but I think two or three years, if you really want to, then, then it's automatic and you feel good. So I wanted to ask you two more things real quick before we stop talking. One is you travel the country teaching coaches and medical professionals. And what is the name of the program now? Yeah, it's called health fit you. Health fit you. And we have a course coming up. If this comes up before November 16, 17, we have a course in West Virginia. So you could put that link. And okay. it's a two-day seminar for health professionals, coaches. You know, so for health professionals, they get credit hours. You know, so it's certified through the AMA and the physical therapy boards because health professionals need to keep, you know, medical credit hours mm -hmm. so they can get those hours. And then coaches just, we have different, the coaches pay a different rate because they don't need the hours, but it's all kind of plain language stuff. So it's not like fancy medical stuff. So like someone like yourself would, you know, if you've been to some of the Newton and Lydiard courses, we take, you know, you take kind of the sciencey stuff and you make it practical, just like we're talking about here, you know, just mm -hmm. it's the practical application of, well, I heard this on the internet the other day. Let's talk about, well, who's your patient? Who's your runner? Who's your client? And it was me, right? <laughs> They're usually asking it for themselves. You know, I have right, this right. friend and his foot hurts, right? <laughs> and let's see your foot, Because right? <laughs> that's what it is. And it's usually they're like, they laugh because they, they, it's about them. I've got this pain right here. 
Yeah. Well, and then I always think of you as kind of being the running form expert. And I didn't ask you any questions about running form. Do you want to have anything you want to say there? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that all depends too. (laughs) Of course. There's, you can't look at a video and say someone's running good or bad. I mean, are they hurt or not hurt? Are they just running for fitness and health? Are they trying to, you know, break 210 for a marathon? You know, so, so you have to look at what is their goal. People who are really training hard, you know, with qualify for Boston, you know, their margin of getting hurt is pretty thin. So they better look at their biomechanics. And if they're not looking at that, it'll come home to roost. It's like you're going to go to the gym and do a CrossFit workout. If you don't know how to lift the bar correctly and now you want to load up the bar. But if you're just doing a couch to 5K program, I mean, just get out the door in the sun and with your friends and have fun. And yeah, I mean, they're they're not adding enough load to their body. You know, you just want them to move, not to get geek out about running form. People that are constantly hurt, of course, look at them because, okay, it's never one factor. Running injuries are like 30 holes in the roof, you know, training errors, you know, a little bit of footwear, strength issues, mobility issues, running form, you know, surfaces, you name it. I mean, you got to look at their equation and try to sort out what it is that is driving their injury. So we have a, I mean, I think a perfect tool is we've got three of them in my store here. They're called true form runners. It's a motorless treadmill mm-hmm. and a little curve on it. And you can't overstride on it. You can't have bad balance. It's like a perfect, hmm. yeah, you just hop on that. And can you make the thing move or does it not move? If it doesn't move, you're doing something wrong. And, you know, we film people on there, but again, you don't overcomplicate it. And you have to give them, like, you can't film someone and say you're doing this wrong without cueing them on how to do it right because your mm-hmm. brain needs, well, you don't land on your heel or something. People can land perfect on their heel, touch and roll, and be just fine. So it's all about forces, which you can't see with your eye. But the motorless treadmill is like a lie detector. Either that thing moves sm- smoothly or it doesn't move. But yeah, I've got, I've wrote a book and I've got a couple chapters on the book on running form. And we have a video now. It's got, I think, over a million views. It's called Principles of Natural Running. You can mm-hmm. share that out. I think if people watch, people shouldn't like try to emulate, you know, well, Mark runs like this or this person runs like this. But that's just principles, right? Just like Lydia, these are principles. They're not prescriptive things. You know, okay, this, the body's a spring. That's non-negotiable in running. It's a spring. And if that spring is not working well and how you land or, you know, your tissues So say your all your fascia is all inflamed because you smoke or you got type two diabetes or stress and you could have the perfect form. But if that spring is all stiff and broken, you know, you may land exactly the same as Elliot Kipchoge, but he springs off the ground. You know, we don't need to talk about the shoes giving him assisted spring, which probably the double, you know, I double F is going to. Yeah, that's truly, you know, in my humble opinion, a performance enhancer. You know, there's a limit to what technology should be allowed to do. You know, that wasn't a world record event, so it's all it's all for show. But if you're looking now at like Olympic medals and things, you know, mm-hmm. if a shoe clearly fits the description of a spring, which is banned in the IAAF, there it, there'll be some legal stuff going on. But maybe then, you know, you just open the doors to whatever you put on your foot that doesn't have mechanical power. You know, like an e-bike has mechanical power. You mm-hmm. know, the e-bikes, you know, it's got like you pedal and it adds because it's got a motor. So you'll see all kinds of crazy. I'd rather go back to like nothing that can 
technically be called a spring should be in a shoe. Well, it kind of reminds me a little bit of triathlon where you have such a wide variety of bikes that people can be using. Yeah. And there's international rules. So, I mean, like your community triathlons, you know, people could spend 20 grand and they're not prize money though. Some of that stuff is illegal if they were actually an Olympic competition because they have standards mm-hmm. of what shape and, you know, how the bars can be. Right. And, um, and uh, you know, I'm sure at Ironman, you know, for the people, the pros, there's standards for their bikes. You know, they, they have to fit a certain, now that's pretty loose. You know, bikes cost like 20 grand there. But uh, swimming, for example, is a good, like a model for what might happen with the shoes. So there was the laser suit that Speedo had. Mm-hmm. When was that? Like 10 years ago, full body suit and Speedo's proprietary that was their product and it clearly gave an advantage right world records were just being destroyed you know and um but then they're like well this isn't accessible to the world right so then okay now you can do whatever you want but it's got to fit between your waist and your thighs you know so for men they can't you can't have these full body suits anymore and that kind of and then the world records kind of disappeared and i think there's been one swimming world record maybe two in the last few years but they were just going down I mean, now you're seeing it's crazy. You'll see people, you know, go from a 240 to a 232, you know, with with no, nothing that would make you think they would do that, right? No 10K. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of this, and uh, even looking at the numbers of Olympic trials qualifiers, they've like over doubled from 2016. And uh, someone, I, I saw something online where the number of the qualifiers who were qualified in those shoes, was, it was like more than half. Wow. So the shoe, yeah, that shoe gives a technologic advantage. doesn't mean that it's making your foot healthier. So I'm not, I mean, there's mm. race day, but yeah, because it's actually assisting. I, so this is what I think, you know, for runners out there, should I go buy this shoe? And I'm like, well, if you just want to run for the rest of your life, no, because so if that graphite plate is assisting your big toe in support stabilization and, and loading your foot, you're decommissioning the muscles that do that. It's a good business model for Nike because then you just keep buying the shoe. But I would rather people get their foot strong. Such and, an excellent point. And but that's not about winning Olympic medals, right? You know, the money's on the line. Geez, always they're going to do. I don't blame anyone for taking, you know, any advantage they can within the legal limits if the money's on the line. But you know, this is I think where it's going to hit the streets to the everyday runner you know i have had several runners in the last month you know write me and upset because you know they qualified for the boston marathon yeah they made the qualifying time but they weren't i think it was 90 seconds you had to be 90 seconds below the qualifier because it filled Mm up so you qualify but then it's filled up and so for a lot of people that is their olympics and so now Mm -hmm. if people are using that shoe which they are and it does give a four maybe six percent advantage in the lab and they haven't even tested this other one that's the margin and so now oh gosh they feel like oh i better go buy that shoe now i mean this is kind of what i saw and i have nothing against this it's just what it is you know we've allowed it to happen and um boston qualifiers it affects the every man the olympics are the olympics you know small Mm -hmm group of professionals but then you have all your citizen runners who you know would just love to go do this race you know is you know i'm in my corral this year you know i think it's like corral five 
And uh, I'm looking around and easily half of the people in that corral had that shoe. Really? Yeah. I'm like, I'm with my friend. I'm like, this is freaking surreal. And Hmm. that was like a 250-ish crowd, you know? So these aren't like... Fast people, but... Well, no, I mean, we're just like, you know, maybe kind of sub-sub elites, you know? 250 range, some of them young, some of them old, but we're certainly not elites. We're 250 range people, you know, in the Boston Corral. But that's, uh, I mean, I didn't look back a few crowds back, but, but. uh, It would be interesting to know. Yeah. Probably someone could like get a little with a camera and look at like, so the, the race, which will be interesting that you could, maybe someone will just film this. uh, So the CIM is coming up California international marathon. Mm -hmm. There's more Olympic trial qualifiers come out of that race than any race because it's downhill. And if the weather conditions are good, like last year, a ton of them, and there's a ton of them in these shoes. But this year, it'll be interesting at that race. It's early December. Like if you took the top 100 in that race, and what shoe were they in? And what was their prior personal best? So oh, <laughs> it's a good be day. It'd be very interesting. Like 80 of them were in the shoe. And the average chop of the personal best without the shoe was four minutes or something. And you're like, whoa, that's some wild yeah. stats but someone's got to you know i'm just making a hypothesis so yeah, someone I think, has to actually do the experiment and study it i think it's really interesting though what you said before just about the difference of you know what is your goal are you doing it because you want to qualify for boston you know as far as like wearing the shoes because if you're looking for longevity you do have to think about what is this doing to my foot and am i using the muscles in my feet and in my legs properly because of the shoes right yeah so, so it really is an interesting you know, yeah, so I mean, throw whatever you need on race day, but uh, you know, I just think now all the companies are are working, you know, behind closed doors to, and then they'll probably in a year the they'll be banned, and then they'll go back to, so we don't have them in my store. I'm, I don't really care, but people may come in and they train in ultras or, you know, some really awesome shoe to strengthen their foot, you know, and then if they want to go throw that shoe on race day, I, I mean, it's their deal. I don't discourage it i don't encourage people to wear that shoe every day because yeah. it would just decom unless they're a professional runner and they think that's going to help them but i mean we don't have any of them folks come in here i just want people like you say your goal is ha- what do you do to run the rest of your life have fun run easy as you get older stay strong lift heavy weights you know you got to lift weights so your muscles don't weaken yeah, stay healthy. I mean, it's not I, I, my book. I kind of spell it out because I have a chapter on aging. Mm-hmm. So people can read my book. It's on Amazon. It's called Run for Your Life. I have a shoe store. So if you go online and buy a pair of shoes, we just go. <laughs> and our store is tworiverstreads.com in West Virginia. What kind of dog you have? She's a Sheltie Poo. Oh, okay. And then we also have a Beagle. But oh, okay. the Sheltie Poop likes to bark at everything. She thinks she's protecting me. <laughs> well, thank you so much for, for taking the time thank to you. talk to me. This was so helpful. I really, really Thank you for taking time out of your day to listen. I'm Coach Kim Peek of Power of Run, and you can find me at www.crushingmygoals.com or on all social media as at sign power of run. If you liked this episode, be sure to give the podcast some love over on iTunes and remember to subscribe. 
as a new podcast your reviews and stars and subscribes will help me grow the audience so that I can share my love of health and fitness and bring more experts to the show. Power up your week and I will catch you next Tuesday.